Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Daily Objective. And today is everybody's favorite day, Philosophy Friday. And we're diving deep. We're in ancient Greece. And last week, we spoke about these, uh, you know, Xenophanes and all these tension between philosophers and poets. Winter is coming, as they say. And uh, today we will be talking about Heraclitus, who, uh, let's just say, you know, Thales said everything is water. Well, Heraclitus said something very different. What he said, we're going to find out momentarily. Please leave a like, uh, hit that join button and super chat your questions or expressions of support as we dive deep. Please welcome philosopher and uh, expert of some aspects of history of philosophy, Jason Rines. Hi. Uh, hey, so, okay, how, first question. And this is something, you... I've, this is something I've, I've published on, so, well, about the pre-Platonic philosophers, so. Yeah, it's, this is in my wheelhouse. This is in your wheelhouse. So first question, how do you pronounce the city from which Heraclitus hails? Ephesus. Eph Ephesus. All right. Um, so Heraclitus criticized. As, a, as an adjective, it's Ephesian. So if, if a like if a school of thought uh, sounds like it came from that from that the culture in that city, you would say it's Ephesian. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Or like the or like the pseudo Pauline uh is it pseudo Pauline? Anyway, like the letter attributed to the um, the uh, the uh, to Paul, Saint Paul, is one of them is Ephesians. I see. Okay. All right. So um, I I'm pretty sure it's the same Ephesus, but I, I might not be sure. In ancient times, one of the things that's notable about it is it was a place where an extraordinarily large temple. Um, uh, to Artemis, I believe, uh, was built. I see. And um, Heraclitus criticizes the, his home city of Ephesus. Uh, he thinks the majority of people there are bad. Yes. Um, so what's his beef with them, if you had to summarize? Um, not totally clear. He seems to have come from an aristocratic family, a family with a considerable amount of hereditary power, perhaps. Um, he talks about at one point that his city exiled a man whom he thought was far superior to everybody else. Um, and uh, he, so there is, there's two kinds of, two or three bits to, to this. One theme that comes across in Heraclitus is that pretty much everybody who's not Heraclitus is pretty clueless about how the world really is. That's one kind of theme. Um, secondly, Heraclitus thinks that, seems to think that most people are pretty lousy and they're none too kind to the few good people that there are. Um, and like, such as this guy who's exiled. And, um, and then on top of that, um, I think he thinks that people have been um, misled, corrupted by a lot of false beliefs, both what the poets have taught them, but even what other philosophers might, might teach them. And in general, a kind of uncritical way of thinking and being in the world. He, he describes most people as if they were asleep and only a very few as sort of being awake. So, um, so he's, in some ways, he is um, a precursor to Plato in terms of his kind of metaphysical, not metaphysical, epistemic sort of elitism and ethical elitism. So plenty of Greeks were elitist. Plenty of Greeks said, oh, we're from the better born families. We're better than the hoi polloi, than hoi polloi. Um, but the philosophical picture is sort of the many, following the aristocratic roots, and most thinkers were from a privileged background. They continue to think the many aren't very good, but they change it. It's not that they're not, you know, well born or something it's that they don't know anything and what they do think they know, you know, um, 
they've been taught by poets who really don't know anything and, and say corrupting things or those other philosophers who are just as bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like Heraclitus was kind of making himself a victim a little bit. And like, maybe this is common among like rationalistic philosophers who get carried away. They end up uh, thinking, oh, I'm so special. No one understands me. And only a few of us get it. And everyone else is an idiot. Um, and uh, I don't know if I'm taking this too far, but it's just kind of it, when you said he's like the precursor to Plato. And of course, Plato you know, believes in the philosopher kings and all of that. Uh, it does seem to be like kind of a pattern when people misuse philosophy, they end up m- kind of uh, feeling like they're the only one who knows anything. And maybe I would tell the audience, if you ever find yourself feeling that way, like you're so special and no one understands you, maybe reverse engineer that and see if maybe you've uh, <laughs> taken some leaps in philosophy that detached you from the actual observable facts. Do you think uh, my little uh, after school special here uh, lecture is, is, is warranted, Jason, or am I completely uh, off my rocker? Um, it's, certainly, it's certainly an occupational hazard of those who try to delve deeper into things that others take for granted and who try to have a kind of transformative view of the world, which often puts them at odds in some ways with other people who don't share the philosophy that they've invented or that they've reinvented or that they've uh, signed on to. Um, that the hazard being that they can become resentful, that they can fail to hold the context of those who don't have the insights or perspective that they do. This is not unique to philosophers. Anybody who has gained knowledge has to work to understand those who haven't yet because it's not easy to return to their context. I mean, adults forget what it was like to be kids. Kids can't know what, it's gonna, what they're going to be like when they're adults or how things are going to seem when they're mature. But adults, it's often said like we forget what our youth was like. And one of the things we forget is we forget that it's easy to think we know everything when we don't, and it's easy to be swept away with our emotions and so on. So, so this is a part of a broader, I think, epistemic um, pitfall that we can all fall into of not holding context. I, do I think this is true about Heraclitus? Uh, we have no way of knowing. What I mean is, or, or I should say, it's actually true that Heraclitus was not understood in in his time, I mean, the Greeks call him enigmatic and enigma here at the time means like a riddle. So like he, he call, they call him like the Riddler. They, they say he's obscure. They, they comment all the time, like nobody's sure what the hell he's saying. And he seems to be somewhat deliberate about this. And there are different explanations why. One explanation is that, I mean, the simplest explanation is he wasn't good at getting his point across, but it seems like there's there's enough artistry in his expressions that it seems like no, it's not just he's clumsy or or he's he's vague. So some one thought is that he means it to be difficult and obscure. He doesn't want just anybody stumbling onto this. Either he thinks that the average Joe who gets a hold of it like isn't going to understand anyway, and this is a way of being a little more self-selective for who gets access. Or, and I I tend to favor more of this explanation, his, many of his sayings are deliberately paradoxical. And they are deliberately paradoxical because he is trying to convey a counterintuitive thought. And the best way to really get at what he's trying to say is in a, is in a form of expression that actually illustrates, that doesn't just describe what he's trying to say, but itself illustrates it. So we'll, we'll get to this because there's a sense in which his, his statements are sort of self-performative. That is, they say that the world is X and the statement itself is X. So I think that's a big part of it. But he was from, like I said, he's from, we're told, this bloodline in Ephesus that were called the kings. They weren't actually monarchs, but they had this um, they had this hereditary role. And according to a report, he um, 
he renounced this in favor of his brother to give his brother the role. And um, there's another story, it may be apocryphal, but the Ephesians wanted him to help write laws for them and he refused um, saying that, you know, they weren't serious enough, that they were like playing with children. So it, elsewhere he talks about the, in some of his fragments, the importance of defending the laws of a city. So it's hard to know if, so anyway, bottom line, to some extent he wanted to be obscure or he, he chose to write in a way that he must've known was confusing and obscure, but I think because he knew what he was saying was challenging. And I kind of think the idea is something like, it's a confusing thought and to get this confusing thought, I have to actually put it, if I make, if I state it in too clear a way, you won't get it because it's not really, it, it's a confusing thing. And um, anyway, so I, I don't know if he was bitter or, 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 or not, um, mm -hmm. but all the stories suggest that not that he was sort of kicked out and rejected by society, but that he rejected society is on un, is unworthy mm -hmm. well so in answering that you you uh, touched upon the fact that his style was uh kind of obscure and stylized um and kind of poetic maybe is poetic the right word because he was a critic of the poets himself yeah, but so was, would, it is not so he is a prose writer it is not in which is to say unlike xenophanes he does not compose in verse it is prose um, however, it is highly stylized prose um, that does not sound like your typical, we think, Greek talking of the late 6th, early 5th century BCE. So, in, so if by poetic you mean like not like typical verse, I mean, sorry, not like typical prose, then yeah, it's not typical prose, but it's not verse, it is prose technically. Mm -hmm. Uh, what's the difference between verse and prose? Uh, pro, so, pro, so prose is just prose is understood in contrast to verse. And verse, unlike the rest of human language, is human language the sequence of which has been arranged according to a language's prosody. A prosody is, in general, a prosody means the kind of system of sounds that a, a given language employs. So some use lots of glottal stops and some use guttural ones and some use liquids and others don't. And so um, some have lots of different vowels, some have very, only two or three or four or five vowels. Okay, but in the specific metrical sense, prosody is the system of sounds that a language uses to create a meter or a pattern. So what does this mean? It means that in verse, you're doing language, but instead of just saying it in the normal way that you do, you're somehow patterning the words, the sounds coming out of your mouth in additional new ways, recognizable, recognizable patterns according to certain types of sound properties of what you're saying. Now, the simplest kind of example would be where by varying pitch and tone and so on, you make music. Um, but verse is a bit narrower in, than that and, and overlaps partially, but not completely. So for example, um, if you, in English, the distribution of stressed and unstressed syllables in a certain pattern creates a meter. So, we our words naturally have unstressed and stressed syllables in modern English. And by and large, our sentences tend in everyday English to fall into a pattern where we have unstressed followed by stressed syllables, roughly, but we don't actually stop and make our words go unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed. When a meter is when, or verse is when we stop and we go, okay, I'm actually going to only say the things I say henceforth will follow this and only, you know, blah, 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 right? So it follows a certain kind of pattern on stress and stress. I screwed it up a little bit. So, um, so anyway, Heraclitus writes prose, which is to say, so in Greek, 
Meter is constructed by an arrangement of long and short syllables. So they don't worry about stressed and unstressed syllables. They do have different pitches up and down and up and down and flat, but, um, but they do their meter by long and short syllables. So the Greek, ancient Greek ear and the ancient Roman ear was attuned to hearing the difference between ah and ah and not and hearing it as if they were different sounds. So not just one sound made longer or short, but the, those are two different sounds. And so ah, 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 that's, that's, that's the Homeric meter right there. Um, now, Heraclitus doesn't do that. Heraclitus is just the longs and shorts are the way that any other Greek thing would be. But other aspects of how he's talking are highly, tricky and not typical. So that's mm -hmm. what, so that's, sorry. So that's a little bit about, out of, out of, you can find this on my poetry course. Um, that's a little bit about what verse is. Um, okay. Um, that was a bit of an aside. Yeah. All of that to say um, Heraclitus' style is highly stylized prose. Uh, now he yes. was a critic of the poets and also of other philosophers, especially Pythagoras. So uh, he came up a lot last week as well. Yes. Um, so he thinks that Pythagoras is, um, he thinks Pythagoras is a fraud, um, like, like Xenophanes. Um, he also mentions Xenophanes as, as not as, he doesn't mention Xenophanes as a fraud, but he says that Hippasus, who's a second or third generation, second generation Pythagorean, the first Pythagorean we hear of associated with actually doing math. So he's quite a brain. He mentioned and Xenophanes. He mentions these as people who know a lot but are not wise. Um, famously, Heraclitus says, um, "Much learning does not make wise, or else it would have made." And then he lists these guys, and you know they're not wise. And that word for much learning is polymathia, our word for polymathy. So they've learned a lot of stuff, they've heard a lot of stuff, but they don't really know stuff. And, and this is a recurrent theme in Heraclitus. He says. Eyes make better witnesses than ears. And that's, what the heck does that mean? That's highly obscure. Um, Heraclitus is obscure. But what most of us think that means, myself included, is that it's better to see something for yourself than to hear about it. So hearsay mm. or testimony is not as good a report as just what your own eyes um, tell you. And... And elsewhere, he seems to think like, but even people who see things don't necessarily get them. And they're like sleepwalkers. Like they, they see it, but it's, it's dead to them. So there is this recurrent idea for, of Heraclitus that people hear stuff from other people and it doesn't teach them anything. And then even if they see stuff, they still don't get it. And it seems for Heraclitus that there is one big truth. So... Isaiah Berlin famously in an essay on, on Tolstoy distinguishes between hedgehogs and foxes. And that distinction, hedgehogs and foxes, comes from a Greek poet, Archilochus, not too far removed in time from Heraclitus, a little earlier, who said, um, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog one big thing. So the fox has lots of tricks. The hedgehog, you know, just rolls up into the spiky ball. It's a really good tactic, right? Heraclitus is, is your kind of prototypical hedgehog. He's got, he has many interesting things to say, but it all comes back to sort of one big idea or insight. And that idea or insight is that all is one. And that one is changing and in conflict with itself, but that the conflict does not divide it the conflict actually holds it together so that there, there is constant change and there is constant sort of plurality or, or constant opposition, but there is unity and coherence within the alteration and the opposition and the, the seeming plurality, there is unity. And is that so where sometimes the, he's called the, the, the thesis is the unity of opposites. 
And and is, is that where the uh, the phrase "everything is fire" is attributed to him? Did he say that, or is that like a paraphrasing? Or no. So I I think I've mentioned in connection with Thales and some of these other guys that in the school of Aristotle and then his his successor Theophrastus, you get this doxographical tradition, this this tradition of recording the doxa, the opinions of the different philosophers, especially natural philosophers. And a key element of a doxa, of these doxographies for pre-Platonic philosophers was what do they say the RK is? What do they say the fundamental source is? This under, it could be the element that everything is made out of. It could be the first thing that there was that everything came out of. It could be both. It could be the thing that rules the others. For Thales, they say it's water because he said that earth floats upon water, maybe comes out of water, but that doesn't mean Thales thought everything was made of water. For Anaximander, it is the Aperon. For Anaximenes, it seems everything is a, a transformation of air, right? Um, and so Heraclitus, they say it's fire. And this is probably because, well, among, among other things, he seems to think that the world perhaps goes, he might have thought the world goes through periodic conflagration. So every few millions or billions of years, everything burns up and then kind of Phoenix-like gets replenished all over again. Um, also, a fire is a kind of very nice metaphor for kind of constant change. And in fact, what the very unity of a, of a flame is, is that moving and shifting and danger. Um, but whether he had a worked out natural philosophy of fire is highly doubtful. It's, it's unlikely that he did. But that fire is what's attributed to him as the arcade. But the fact is, is that um, he seems to think that any given element is really the other element. So each is, each is the other's death. Fire is the death of air, which is the death of water or so on, or water is the death of fi fire, but they all come around. So mm -hmm. it's, like, it's like that one authentic quote of an Aximander we have, they pay penalty, penalty to each other for their injustices according to time, but going further and sort of saying that they are, not only are they go back and forth with each other in a kind of balance, but they really even are each other. They're not really, they're only superficially different in a deep sense. Or the important thing is that one system in which they are united. Um, no, he, uh, Heraclitus, he, he wasn't very interested in Milesian style natural science. Is it that he didn't, he wasn't a big fan of like transmission of uh, collected knowledge from one, from a teacher to student because he thought experience is better than, than learning that information? Or did he think that information itself, the, the collection of natural science is just basically flawed in itself? I think more the latter. I think it's more that he thinks those people maybe learn a lot of stuff. It doesn't make them wise. Much learning does not give you wisdom. Um, there's only one or two places where he kind of deliberately weighs in on sort of natural philosophical, or what we would call scientific questions, like the actual size of the sun. And things he says are sort of shockingly, sometimes unscientific. But I, I take it that he is really, in a deep sense, he is a kind of more of a metaphysician than a physicist. Or, or geologist. That is, for him, the important thing is this one big theme mm. of that there is this logos, there is this wisdom that rules everything and holds everything through the unity of conflict. And he thinks that if you don't see that, none of the rest sort of matters. So all of these other, I think, philosophers and thinkers, he criticizes for failing to see unity in the oppositions they posit. He says Hesiod, who's, re who's reported to be so wise, didn't even know that day and night are one. Because Hesiod says that day is the child of night. And Heraclitus is saying day and night are the same thing. Um, so, um, so that seems to be more along the lines of, I think he thinks with, the big point is this big metaphysical insight. And without that, you've learned nothing. Mm -hmm. This uh, finding the one in the many, I, I mean, can be said to be sort of the sort of job of philosophy. 
And was he the first to do this? I mean, we did an episode about Thales and his some of his contemporaries weren't wasn't Thales in his own way uh, trying to unite everything. So we don't really know what we get lots of stories about Thales and water, but the truth and he does seem to have said he seems to have said everything is full of gods. We have no idea what that means, to be honest. Um, so people say, you know, this theory, everything's water is it's the first unified theory and it's the first materialistic or naturalistic unified theory. We don't know if it even thought everything was water. In fact, I don't think he thought that. And Galen, um, the great physician and sometime, you know, student of the history of philosophy says, I've looked at Thales and even though everybody says, he says water is the element, I can't find it there. And I think that he's right because I don't think that was his, his view. In Anaximander, you do seem to have this view that things started out as the unlimited, the operon, and that light and dark stuff, ether and air, or, or misty, like bright air and mist, dark mist or cloud come from it. Anaximander, and that they are locked together in these, these conflicting opposites are locked together in a system where they pay penalty to each other, where they balance each other out over time. In Anaximony, oh, and Anaximander seems to have introduced the concept of cosmos as a physical concept. So the word had already meant to make yourself beautiful, to put yourself together, to coordinate your outfit, so to speak. You know, you got your hair and your earrings and your, your vests or whatever. Um, but now he's using it as a word to describe the whole world integrated in something beautiful. Mm -hmm. So with an Aximander and then Anaximenes, who does seem to think everything is a transformation of, of, of mist or air, you do seem to have this view, all of this stuff is one. But even these, maybe an Aximander, not, a, not, not the Anaximenes thing, maybe an Aximander understanding these things as paying penalty to, to each other. But really, I think with Heraclitus, this becomes a, a recognizably metaphysical claim where it's not just natural science. I mean, it is, this is a real metaphysical claim that there is unity and change, that opposing things are really the same thing or held together, that all the world is sort of one. Um, that's, that's at a level of description that I think is where you can say, okay, this is starting to be metaphysics. They don't yet have an explicit concept of being. That'll be in the next generation in Parmenides. And then you can say, we have ontology and we really have metaphysics now. But I think with Heraclitus, we're getting that like metaphysical perspective. Okay, so um, basically, he thinks most people are ignorant, and lo the logos are like his sort of unifying concept. Would you say the logos is like a a worldview? One. Um, mm -hmm. So I oh I should add, they're ignorant. They're also fake. So either deliberately or just because they don't get what they're doing. So one of my favorite Heraclitus sayings is many carry the thrysis, but few are Bacchus. So the thrysis, you know, the Lulav from Sukkot. Sure. Okay. So Jews know this, non-Jews. It's this big kind of frond like plant thing that you shake. So worshipers of Dionysus would go in procession and they'd shake these and it was called the thrysis. Hmm. And the women, usually women, it wasn't ex exclusively women, revelers of Dionysus are called Bacchus. And um, and the idea is many carry the thrysis, but few are Bacchants. So a lot of people say the words few are really devoted or few really get it. But he also thinks that Dionysus and like Hades, they're the same God or something like that, or Zeus and Hades. That, um, so he thinks that there's a lot of misapprehension about the gods and about these different things, but a lot of fakery. Okay, so you were asking, people don't apprehend this. Uh, oh, oh, the Logos, is that his real thing? So the logos is logos is one logos is a word that means word or statement. Um, it can be it can also be your 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 uh, your thesis or your your um, your account. So the thing you say. Uh, what do you, what does what does Rucka say about hip hop? Like that's your logos about hip hop. Um, um, I have a different view about hip hop. I have a different logos, but it can also. Um, so it's not usually a single word, but it is sort of speech. Only later in the late, late fourth, after Aristotle and early third century, does it come to mean 
reason more broadly. It's not the preferred term for reason for two centuries or three centuries of Greek philosophy. All right, that's one word he uses. He also calls it the sophos, the wise. He says, the wise, the, like the wise thing is one alone, willing and unwilling to be called Zeus. And he says, it steers everything through the thunderbolt. This is another reason people maybe said that Heraclitus' RK was fire. So the Greeks think of lightning and thunder as, as fire. When you see depictions of, of it, it looks like a burning thing and a burning thing. And, and why wouldn't they think of it as fire? It sets things on fire when it hits. It sheds light like fire does. And until Benjamin Franklin, no one knew that it was an electrical phenomenon, like static electricity. Okay. Um, so, so it steers all through the thunderbolt. So Zeus has the thunderbolt, but normally Zeus, you know, uses the thunderbolt to smite things. And that's part of his power base, but it doesn't steer all things. The, the word here is, um, Kubernetes, like a, a steersman, uh, and a ship. So it's, he pilots everything. So there is this notion that there is a kind of single account or plan, you might say, that you could call Zeus if you wanted to. It's not like Zeus and Homer. So it's willing and unwilling to be called Zeus. You could call it Zeus. It's God. I mean, it's everything. But it's not, you know, that guy who goes around sleeping with mortal women in the shape of, of a, a bull, you know, or, or anything like that. So that's, that is this thing. And that, and this thing is there in constitutes or is present in all of the different seeming, all the seeming differences that there are. So Heraclitus says nature loves to hide. And he says, so he's using the term phusis where we get our word physics already in the sense of like either collectively nature or a thing's real nature loves to hide. So it's not superficially obvious. And this becomes a big theme in the history of Western thought and science that a thing's real nature may not be its most apparent quality. Exactly what Heraclitus means nature loves to hide is unclear. It could be a couple things. He also thinks that the stronger sort of harmony is the hidden and harmony, it's only starting to mean a musical term. It originally means the fittings of joints where they're joined together in carpentry. So what kind of recessed joints are what really holds the structure together. And he also thinks that what holds everything together is conflict. And he says, you know, they're foolish who say, would that war would perish because people are like, if only we could have peace forever. And he goes, no, 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 you fools. Like war hold, war or conflict actually holds things together. And one of his most famous analogies is the tension of a bow or of a lyre, like a small heart, where the bow is actually trying to pull itself straight. The tension is literally, or, or a heart is literally kind of tearing itself apart, but it's that very tension which makes it work together. So it's only the string pulling together and the wood pulling apart that actually makes the whole thing hold together as a bow that, that sort of shoots. And then he loves to point out that, he loves to kind of point out contradictions, that, you know, like the same word we have for bow is also, a, you know, this word for another thing. He points out that water is life to fish, poison, seawater, poison to man. So one, so this is another case of sort of opposites, but it's also in this case, opposite perspectives. So one and the same thing can have opposite effects on different things as well. Hmm. Um, he, he saw language as, as a potentially corrupting thing for in order for people to understand properly like he saw language as one of the reasons why people are ignorant or misinformed is that right i think he thinks of it as misleading as misleading or or i think he thinks it's people get tripped up on it you're right people get tripped up on it i don't i wouldn't say he thinks it's corrupting i don't know but he thinks there's some alternative to it 
Um, but he certainly thinks that people are confused. You know, he, he doesn't quite put, put it totally explicitly, or at least not in our surviving fragments, but he seems to be on towards this theme that a superficial kind of engagement with language confuses people conceptually in a crude way. Um, so for example, he says the road up and down is one. In other words, like we say the road up to Athens, the road down from Athens, it's the same road. Linguistically, it's two things, to the road from the road to Athens, it's the same road. Mm -hmm. um, so two words, one thing. And, and so he's, and this is one of these paradoxes he delights in because if you look at the structure of his sentence there, it's very weird, but it's, it's sort of deliberately set up so that that same word for road is sort of doing double work for one and, and thing. So, it, so the word is one thing in the sentence as it's doing this. Similarly, he has sentences that have chiastic construction. So what is chiastic construction? Chi is the Greek letter that looks like our X, where our X. Um, and so chiastic construction is like this, where A, B, B, A. So it's where you have, for example, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That is a Kennedyan chiasm, chiastic construction. Um, but Greeks loved this aesthetically in the sixth, fifth, fourth centuries. It sort of shows conflict, but unity in conflict. Heraclitus likes this sentence kind of structure and he uses it when, he's, when he says, water is the death of fire and fire the death of air. So it's like A to B, B to C or A, B, B, or something like A. And the very sentence is sort of saying from, you go from this to this and from this back again. And the sentence is doing that in terms of linguistic object one, linguistic object two, two, and then you know, back to one again. So um, that's, so he, he recognizes language can trip you up, but he delights in using language atypically to illustrate his, his counterintuitive or non-superficial, non-obvious metaphysical perspective by having the language perform the, in, the metaphysical insight he is delivering. He will make the words return to the thing from which they came to be linguistically. He will have the same one serve in double roles in the sentence, the same object to two different verbs or something like that. And uh, he sees the universe as uncreated and indestructible with cycles of conflagration, if I'm pronouncing that, conflagration. Conflagration, right. What so, is that? Well, conflagration, so, so there are different views about, about how the universe, does the universe come to be or not? Does it have a beginning or not? If it has a beginning, does it have an end? If it has beginning, a beginning and end, does it have innumerable beginnings and ends or just one? Um, or is it no beginning, no end, it's eternal? And all these different Greek positions are, are sort of represented. If Heraclitus believes in a sort of conflagration where everything just sort of burns up every, every so many years, every so many billion years, um, he would, if that's his view, he would seem to be of the view that the cosmos understood as our kind of, you know, as we would call it, our solar system does have a beginning and an end, but it gets, it gets replaced by the next one and the next one and the next one. So the cosmos has a beginning and an end, but the universe doesn't. And it, Aristotle actually points to views like this, these eternal recurrence views, these, it all gets destroyed and re rebuilt again. And he says, if you're going to say the, the cosmos is created and destroyed, at least the view that it gets recreated over and over again is a lot more plausible than the idea that there was one creation. Because, because what Greeks from Parmenides on, after Heraclitus on, point out is like, if you never, if the world was uncreated or it was, you know, all in this base state and it had been like that from time immemorial, why would it change? Why would it suddenly change? And if it could change, what's to prevent it from changing back? It doesn't really make sense to say, 
before there was time for innumerable duration or something, all was chaos. And then suddenly it came into order. Why now? We go, well, that, that's when God decided to do it. Well, why didn't he decide to do it a week sooner or a week later? There were no weeks because there were no days. Yeah, okay, but why, why that moment and not the previous moment? What, what's the difference? And there's no answer to that. Mm. Um, okay, now he had an interesting view of the relationship between like ethical political concepts such as justice and law uh, relating to like the natural world. So he, he thought we get a lot of our vocabulary for understanding the natural laws of nature from such ethical political concepts. And in turn, we use, um, the, we use our like understanding of nature in order to, uh, form a proper society. Am I, am I summarizing it? Uh, yeah. Correct? So it's around the time of Heraclitus that the concept of phusis nature really comes into its own as, a, as, as one of the central Greek philosophical concepts. And it seems by the time of Heraclitus, it already has quite a bit of a developed usage. And we don't really, I can't recall if it's much in Xenophanes, it might be. Um, but in, it, it's in all likelihood, it probably starts getting used before Heraclitus in the sixth century, maybe even as far back as the Milesians. Um, but by the end of the fifth, by, by the end of the sixth, beginning of the fifth century, it is all over Ionian thought. And once you have a concept of nature, once you have this concept that there is something inside of things like plants, and, and that's the word phusis comes from the Greek word phuo, which means to grow like a plant grows, um, like phytology. Um, the and things have it in them and it's it's this internal principle of why how things grow and develop or move around and it's not the same thing as a will it's not the same thing as just wanting to do stuff it seems to sort of happen on its own it is autonomous if you will once that becomes a concept then the greeks start looking at things like their own laws or conventions, nomoi. And in the fifth century, the Fusis nomos debate or distinction becomes a major issue. Now, it's not yet sort of there in, in Heraclitus that Fusis is against nomos, but it does, but he is seeing the kind of links and sort of saying that we align them. And, and it's true that much of our understanding of the order of the natural world starts with analogies to the order of the social world. Like we saw in that Anaximander fragment, they pay penalty to each other for their injustices. This is a way of talking about a natural cycle, but in terms of restitution and damages. So it's similar in, in Heraclitus. Um, Heraclitus, um, does say something very interesting, which is that to Zeus, all things are just, um, or all, and, and similar things about like war. It seems to be this kind of view, but like from this perspective of the universe, everything is what's supposed to happen, perhaps. No, nothing that happens isn't supposed to happen. There's a, a line where he says, the sun would not or one of the stars, would not quit its course or the Furies would punish it. And it seems to be like everything is in the place it's supposed to sort of be it, from the grand perspective. From the limited perspective, some things look bad and some things look good. From our human perspective, salt water looks like poison, but from the fish's perspective, it's life. But from the universe's perspective, it's all just. Mm -hmm. um and the soul or psyche or psyche how did how did they uh what yeah, did he so so the greek word that comes to mean soul is psyche mm -hmm. and it in homer psyche is very limited in its usage it means like the only thing that happens with psyche psyche plural in homer is that you give them up they leave your body when you die or get knocked out so it's like giving up the ghost we sometimes we say in, in older English. Um, and that, that's about it. 
and you're, it's like the ghost of you in Hades as well. It is not what you think with. You think with your guts or your heart. It's not your inner monologue. It's not the organ of, of cognition. By the fifth century BCE, psyche and body are consistently kind of put at odds with each other. They belong to sort of each other. Most thinkers think psyche is some part of the body or some kind of body. Maybe it's fire, maybe it's our blood, but it is contrasted from the corpse, so to speak, and soul plus corpse equals alive. Mm. So the Greek word to be alive is empsukos, or the Latin equivalent is animated. So anima in Latin is like suke in Greek. Animated is ensouled, empsukos, mm. so a soul in you. It's not quite there yet in Heraclitus, or, or it's getting there, this notion of suke. He mentions it a few times. He says, the dry soul sees better than the wet. We think he's talking, he might be talking about being drunk or sober. Um, it's, it's not clear. Uh, so oh, he and, and, oh, one other thing he says. Mm -hmm. One of the things you'll sometimes see attributed to Heraclitus is character is destiny. Now, what he actually says is, Athos is the daimon. Athos is your character, your habitual sort of character. What is the daimon? The daimon, like in eudaimonia, but also like where we get our word demon, is usually like something in between gods and humans. Could be like the child of a god, something like that. Early, early Greek, it's, it could even refer to a god, but it's sort of a generic spirit, maybe God, more than human. It seems that at this point in Heraclitus, the thought is a daimon is this idea of something like a guardian spirit or something that sort of determines your destiny. So you get like, you'll be happy, you daimonos, if you get a good daimon, and that means you get a good life. So like, you've got a good angel on your shoulder. You've got like good luck because a daimon is looking out for you or you have a bad one. And what Heraclitus seems to be saying here is your 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 desk, your daimon, that that spirit that determines your life outcome is actually your character. Mm -hmm. We're almost out of time, but he he into he, he believes in like reincarnation or being reborn, and it, he references it. it. Mm -hmm. So again, there's this notion of unity of opposites, and things come from their opposites. He says, from the living, the dead, and the dead. The, the living. So mm -hmm. that seems to be a nod to the view, the growing belief among some Greek philosophers in reincarnation, which starts, we believe, was introduced to the Greeks by what through um, Pythagoreanism. Uh huh. Are, um, are there any super chats? We do have uh, some, but none are questions. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, thank you, Roland. Roland says you can't send the same super chat twice but I am ah. sending this one now. Um, sounds like a so, philosophy joke. Yeah, so one of, so Heraclitus famously says, Pantachre, uh, all things flow. And then the most famous fragment or saying of Heraclitus is that something, uh, time or, or, or something, is like a river or you cannot step into, probably the, you cannot step into the same river twice. From the get-go, we have multiple sources attesting to this saying, and they all give it a little bit different. And right away, they heavily embed their, their record of this fragment in very loaded interpretation. So exact, so, and it's probably original meaning may be, it's difficult to kind of peel away the layers of interpretation that that are between us and it, including the different, slightly different versions of it. The most reliable thing is to try to go to the earliest versions of it. But it seems to be, and it's or traditionally it has been understood as the idea that the same waters flow, a river has the same and different waters. So this is the same river that I am standing in as a moment ago. And yet all the water that is around me at this place is different than the water that was here a moment ago. So it may be that was his original point, was that there is unity in change. Everything seems to be changing, and yet 
that through line of the change is the thing that stays the same. Hmm. But then, but that you cannot step into the same river twice is kind of this confusing, it is paradoxical because what do you mean? It's the same river. By definition, if I'm stepping in the same river, it's the same again or twice. But the idea is that for waters upon waters flow, I tend to think that the original notion is actually unity in and through change, not the non-unity of something moving. Um, so that's, so you can't send the same super chat twice, right? Or, or um, you know, Marilyn, Jonathan, Ronald, all are the same, all are super chat, all are one. Mm. Okay. He was, he was, he was looking for a way to unify things, not to uh, cause perpetual disintegration. But, well, but yes, but he wants to stress that it is a unity of mm -hmm. opposition and conflict. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Christopher and Bonnie sent super chats as well. Thank you for that. All right. And uh, with that, we can uh, call it a wrap uh, coming up today. At 7 p.m. UK time, it's finance, which is in a few minutes, Finance Friday with Jim Brown on why did inflation take so long to show up? Then at 8 p.m. UK time, it's James Valiant, Robert and Amy Nasser continuing their discussion on Leonard Peikoff's Keeping It Real. Today's topic is courage versus fear. And then on Saturday, we are restarting the Productivity Hub, which is open to members. The topic will be Russian romantic music with Nicholas Krusik. Folks, this is life enriching stuff. So hit that join button here on YouTube or else hit the uh, go to the link, uh, the ARCUK link uh, in the chat and down below in order to become a member there. Uh, thanks, Jason. Uh, enriching and informative as always. So uh, we'll talk again soon. And uh, everybody leave a like and leave a super thanks as well. See you all next week and goodbye.